Today is Tuesday, December 12, 2023, and today marks the one-year anniversary of my friend Mark's passing. Mark was the co-host and co-founder of this podcast, and so I thought it appropriate that on this one-year anniversary that it might be nice to go back into the archive of episodes and to find an episode that fits this Christmas season. And so we went back and looked for the episode on Isaiah chapter 7, in which the great prophet, 750 years before Jesus will be born, predicts that he will be born of a virgin and he will be called Emmanuel, God with us. It's a great episode, and as always, Mark is extremely insightful and entertaining. I hope you enjoy as we look to the birth of our Savior and the celebration of that, honoring the gift that was Mark Lautenschlager. Enjoy. This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining me today, as he always does, is our pastor of education, Reverend Sam Kastensmith. You know, Sam, this morning um, at Staff Devotions, we had Ephesians 6 was one of the passages we were talking about, and I recommended our podcasts from the uh, that we did on that particular chapter on the, on the armor of God and that ending of Ephesians chapter 6, mm-hmm. and I went back and listened to them, and that was the very first remote podcast we'd done at the very beginning. That was in March of last year. That was the beginning of the COVID era. <laughs> yeah. um, and it was just so obvious that, uh, I mean, you were on your porch. We could hear the lawnmowers. <laughs> pool pumps. <laughs> yeah, pool pumps, traffic going turnpike. by. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, those really were very good podcasts. I, I loved doing Ephesians. and um, But it's just interesting to listen to the genesis of this, because we're still recording remotely, folks. We um, we're, everybody's still kind of working from wherever they are and we're doing this remote recording thing and we've got it down to a science a little bit now. Um, but that was the very first one. So we were, it was delightfully awkward at the beginning. <laughs> I remember that I would be a sweaty mess by the end of the episode out on my porch. Yeah. Even in March. But your statement was you were escaping a, a noisy family and a two-year-old that's just being potty trained. That was your explanation for yeah. Wanting to be on the porch. <laughs> I, I, I just, that was when I came to the realization that there is nowhere in my entire life that's quiet. <laughs> like, to try to find a place where you could record with no noise, forget about it. It's over. You had to have to be 2 a.m. in the church or something like that. Yeah. I, yeah I've, I do forget how, you know, I mean, our children have been gone from the home now for a number of years. And so... You know, I've become extremely used to a nice, quiet house. The The cat knocks something off the counter if she doesn't get her food early enough. But other than that, <laughs> you know, it's very quiet here. So I, I, I have to admit, I have forgotten those days of having young children at home. Um, I guess there's some part of that that I that I miss on some scale, but I can't find the emotion. <laughs> I can't I can't find the emotion of, gee, I really miss the noisy part uh, that yeah. that's uh, not that's not there. But yeah, there's a lot of good parts. The noisy part. I could, I, I, I you could do without go that. Of that. Okay. Yeah. So we're this is our second week now on our study uh, in the book of Isaiah, and I promised you guys the tagline for it. It is called 
a voice of hope, Isaiah, a voice of hope. So we've got the, I now, I now know the tagline. I've got the official logo. They've revealed it to us in the, uh, on the production side of things. Uh, so this is our second week in Isaiah, a voice of hope. And this week we're coming to Isaiah chapter seven, and we're coming to the story of somebody named Ahaz. And Ahaz is the king of Judah. He's the grandson of Uzziah. If you heard, if you were with us last week, you remember that last week started with a vision that Isaiah had of God in the year that King Uzziah died. So now this is some time later, because after Uzziah, you had Jotham, who mm-hmm. reigned for a number of years. 16. 16 years. And then Ahaz came in and they think some some historians think he, that Ahaz and Jotham were like co-regents for a couple of years. And then Jotham died and Ahaz took over. But regardless, there's a passage of a couple of decades between the story in chapter six and where we are in, in chapter seven, because we're on, you know, a king down the line. This is Uzziah's grandson. Mm-hmm. And he's not a really good guy. Um it's kind of funny because when it, the historical books, Second Chronicles and Second Kings, in those stories, I find it funny or ironic, not funny, ironic. I find it ironic, Sam, <laughs> that uh, they say that Ahaz didn't do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. <laughs> yeah. Like the kings of Israel set the gold standard for wicked behavior. Yeah, that's like an equal sign there. Yeah. He, he did not walk in the ways of the Lord. He was wicked like the kings of Israel. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so there weren't many good kings, but the few good kings during this time period were in Judah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Israel was O for king. And <laughs> all their kings were wicked. Before we get into the story, because the story's not going to make a lot of sense mm-hmm. if you don't understand what's kind of going on here geopolitically. So, Sam, mm-hmm. could you give us a an overview of where Ahaz finds himself, what's going on in that part of the world, and, and what he's up against here? Mm-hmm. So what's going on right now is you, you have the kingdom of Judah. They have Israel, which has now become an enemy to them in the north. And they also have Aram, which is also known as Syria. And those two kingdoms are now allied, but they have this big threat that's to the north and to the east of them called Assyria. And what had happened, if you went back into history before David established Israel as this mighty kingdom, you had all these major empires in every direction of Israel. You had the Hittites straight up to the north. You had the Assyrians to the northeast. You had the Babylonians to the east. You had the Egyptians to the southwest. And they were like the crossroads of all these major empires that were warring for territory. Then you come right before David, there's something that historians call the Bronze Age Collapse, and it's really fascinating, but all of those major empires all at once just are decimated, and we oh. don't exactly know why. They think it's because of famine or something changed and and weather patterns or climate or something, but Egypt shrinks into itself. The Hittites go away entirely. The Assyrians kind of shrink into themselves. The Babylonians shrink into themselves. And they go away, and Israel emerges in the vacuum as this massive, mighty kingdom that emerges right there in Palestine and becomes a big deal. Huh. At the Where we're talking about now, we're about 250 years or more after David is king, and now all of a sudden Assyria is on the comeback. Historians call this Neo-Assyria. You'll have Neo-Babylon later. 
Um, but now all of a sudden, this kingdom that was once really mighty is now gaining power again. And so the Syrians to the north and the Israel, the kingdom of Israel to the north of Judah are going, uh-oh, <laughs> they're growing again. And oh, by the way, they're really hungry. And it is known all throughout the world that they want to expand their empire. This new king, whose name is Tiglath-Pileser, is coming for Egypt. He wants to conquer Egypt, which means if he's going for Egypt, he's going to swallow us up. And so the two northern, the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Syria are like, we've got to join forces and fight these guys. But at this point, Judah is like, I want no part of it. I kind of like Assyria. <laughs> um, and that sets up this conflict that's going to emerge here. It's sort of like Ahaz is this nerdy kid on the playground that tries to become friends with the big tough guy, the bully <laughs> on the playground. Yeah. And the Assyrians, they were an absolutely brutal opponent. Mm -hmm. um, the stories that we've told at different times about what the Assyrians would do when they would come in and, and take over an area um, they would give you a choice, surrender, mm -hmm. or if you don't surrender, we're going to go in and kill all of you, men, women, mm -hmm. children, and pile your heads outside the city so that the next city we come to remembers that and doesn't force us to have to work that hard. They were tough people. They were absolutely brutal. A lot of the stuff that they would do to people that you can read about in their ancient records, which we still have, we can't even talk about in a podcast because there might be kids listening. I mean, really horrible people. They were known as the first terroristic empire in the world. I, I, you read about them when they would take people into exile. They didn't just lead them away, but they actually put gaff hooks through their cheeks or noses and chained them together so that if one of them tried to run, they would rip everybody's you know cheeks open. Oh. They were just unbelievably barbaric. I mean, every bit as wicked as ISIS of today, they, they delighted in watching people in terror. So we can understand why Syria and Israel did not want the Assyrians mm -hmm. marching through their countries because they're going to just lay waste to everything. Mm -hmm. And 40 years before this is right about when you should find the prophet Jonah. And Jonah's going, I want nothing to do with them. I don't yeah. want to go there. So Assyria had a reputation as being like the most wicked, barbaric people, unbelievably brutal, but really strong militarily. Yeah. So Ahaz is, is going to roll over and be a puppy dog here with respect to Assyria. And that causes Syria and Israel to then invade Judah. They start, mm -hmm. they start, you know, war with Judah. They're like, look, if we can't, if this guy's not going to help us, we need to go down there and take care of him and put a puppet on the throne. Mm -hmm. And so they had begun an incursion into uh, Judah. It also encouraged some others like the Philistines piled in, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're Ahaz at this moment, if, if just let's, let's look at what's happened to the kingdom of Judah in the last 200 years prior to this. You know, when you had David and Solomon, Judah was the powerhouse. They were the, the kingly tribe. They had all of the tribes united. They were surrounded by these, you know, smaller tribes like the Philistines and the Edomites and the Moabites and the Ammonites that surrounded them on every side. But they totally owned them. You know, they, they reigned over the Edomites and the Ammonites. Nobody dared mess with them. And once Solomon sinned and the kingdom after him under his son Rehoboam, when the kingdom was split into a northern Israel and a southern Judah, 
Slowly but surely, Judah began losing its prestige in the ancient world. Israel began to fight against them. The Philistines got bold. The Ammonites and the Moabites started to rebel. And you started having all the consequences of the kingdom falling apart. And so now when you're Judah, you're looking at Israel. They're not your friend. You've warred with them before. And now if you're Israel and you're looking down at Judah, you think, okay, you're lining yourself with Assyria. We have warred in the past already. What's to say that you're not going to make this – if Assyria does come for us, what's to say you're not going to make this a two-front war for us, fighting us from the south as they're coming from the north? So, of course, they think we're going to knock you out. We're, we're just going to take you out so that we can focus all of our attention to the north, mm-hmm. to this threat of Assyria. And they do. They do exactly that. So they get down to Jerusalem and get stuck <laughs> mm-hmm. because Jerusalem is a is a heavily fortified city at that time, um, uh, also set up at on the high ground of the area, uh, mm-hmm. as most as most cities were in the ancient world. If you if you if you were going to build a big city, you didn't build a big city down in the valley. Um, you tried to build a big city up on high ground because that was defensible mm-hmm. and you'd put up walls to protect yourself. And Jerusalem was a was a fortified city. So. You had the Syrians and the Israelites coming down from the north. Then, like you said, the Philistines who are to the west along the Mediterranean are like, ooh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Maybe, maybe we can get some of our stuff back. And so they start coming. And then to the south of Judah, you have the Edomites and they are going, ooh, and they start coming up. And so if you're Ahaz, on every side, you're facing threats and it seems inevitable that all of this is going to come crashing down. Right. And I, you know, it is it, it in those days being a king and deciding when to invade your neighbors was a lot like finding out when they have the bogos at Publix or the double coupon day at Walmart or Target or something. <laughs> when you hear, when you get that news, you decide it's time to go to the store. <laughs> so when you hear that Syria and Israel have invaded Judah and they've both got big armies, which is going to occupy Judah's attention, you're like. Now is our chance. Mm-hmm. We're going to the store, honey. <laughs> Time to go. Um, so that's what they did. So Isaiah chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekas, the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel, so it was the prince, went up to Jerusalem to make war against it, but could not prevail against it. And it was told to the house of David, that would be a reference to Judah, saying, Syria's forces are deployed in Ephraim. So his heart and the heart of his people were moved as the trees of the woods are moved with the wind. I like that mental picture there. Yeah, it's good. You know, the leaves just flutter at the slightest wind, you know, and and I think that's where Judah is at this moment. They're seeing Syria, Israel on the way. And they have nothing that they're anchored to, and they're just fluttering. Everybody's freaking out. Anxiety is overwhelming, and fear is overwhelming. It seems like it is the inevitable end, and I love that picture. They're just Mm. being blown around Mm. by circumstance. The Lord steps into the picture here. He sends Isaiah in verse 3, Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the Fuller's Field. I, we should stop for a second and talk about where that is. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the significance of, of this? Where were they finding Ahab? 
Ahaz. I'm sorry, I said Ahab. Ahaz. Ahaz is down south, and if you look at Jerusalem, it's kind of this narrow hill that comes down, and in the southern part of it, it's the city of David, and it's where the upper pool was. It's where the spring is. And so he's wondering, like, what are we going to do? Because it's the spring, this water, is outside the walls of the city. And so if the enemy comes and they siege us, if they surround us, we will have no supplies of water except the cisterns that are inside the water, which we will eventually run out of. And so he's out there kind of going, what in the world am I going to do? How in the world are we going to supply ourselves water if the enemy comes and surrounds us and lays siege? Um, and so that's kind of the point. He's down there in close to the Valley of Hinnom um, just trying to figure that out is is the thought. Isaiah would have essentially been finding Ahaz at a moment when Ahaz was very much it, like this was this whole situation was really on his mind. He's thinking, mm-hmm. how do I keep my city from dying of thirst? Mm-hmm. And oh, here comes Isaiah, who yeah. we think is probably part of the family. We were mm-hmm. talking about that some last week. We think that Isaiah and Uzziah, for instance, were cousins, something right. like that. Yeah, and he was he was definitely in royal family somehow. Sure. We don't exactly know how, um, but when he comes. One of the interesting things is he – we learned this in Second Chronicles 28. What's already happened, it's not like Syria and Israel have not already done stuff. They've been going through the smaller villages and towns of Judah and we're told that they are conquering them, that they are taking their citizens as captives and leading them back up to Israel. And so – Ahaz is – it's not that the battle hasn't started. It's that Jerusalem is kind of the last domino to fall. They've Mm -hmm. already conquered much of Judah at this point, and Ahaz is like, we're the last target. They're coming. Yeah. And you would think that in a situation like that, if you were the king of Judah and, you know, your people had this history of the Lord their God taking care of them, that the thing you want most of all – if I was Ahaz – I would want to hear from the Lord. Mm-hmm. I want the Lord to come down and tell me something. I need to get a message from God here. Give me some good news. It's been a long time since I've had any good news. I would like some. <laughs> and Isaiah shows up with good news. You know, what's, what's interesting is Isaiah shows up with, with his son, and his son's name is Sheer Jashub, which you learn in the next chapter in Isaiah chapter eight eighteen that his sons are literally named to bring prophetic messages to the people. And in Hebrew, that name means the the remnant shall return. Now, I mean, think about, <laughs> think wow. about what's hidden behind that. What, why would there be a remnant? Well, it means that a lot of them are going to be gone, yeah. but there will be a remnant left. What does it mean that they'll return? It means that your people are going to be taken away into exile. So Isaiah has named his son a message that says a lot of your people are going to be wiped out, but there will be a remnant and they will return, which means they will go into exile. Yeah. And so you can imagine Isaiah showing up with his son with this message, and he's meeting a king who you would think, like you said, my goodness, call on the name of the Lord, like he has delivered your people again and again and again and again throughout history. But what we know about Ahaz, again, from these other Second uh, Kings and Second Chronicles, is that Ahaz is absolutely consumed with pagan worship and in probably the most wicked ways that we've seen thus far. Like he not, he worships the worst and most despicable god 
of that region in the ancient world, which is the god Moloch. And the way that you worshipped Moloch was to sacrifice your own son or sons into the fires of worship. So he, he threw his sons to be burned alive and worshipped to these pagan gods that were surrounding Judah. So this is a guy who has no interest in the Lord at all. And here you have God Almighty looking at this unbelievably wicked man and is going and is trying to provoke him to come back, to bring the nation back to the Lord. Yeah. So verse 4, we have the message, uh, the Lord speaking to Isaiah, and say to him, Take heed and be quiet. Do not fear or be faint-hearted for these two stubs of smoking firebrands. <laughs> <laughs> Such a good insult there. Two stubs of smoky. What like? What's a firebrand? You know, it's a it's a it, a firebrand is wood that you use to to start other fires with, right? Yeah, and so like they're they're just stubs. They're almost done. They you, you don't have to be afraid of them. They're they're almost burnt out entirely. Don't worry yourself over them. Right. Um, so he says, don't be faint-hearted for these two stubs of smoking firebrands for the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remalia, because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Remalia have plotted evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and trouble it, and let us make a gap in its wall for ourselves and set a king over them, the son of Tabeel, thus says the Lord God. Now, mm -hmm. they believed Ahaz would not have courage, that he mm -hmm. would not stand up against them, that he would give in and surrender. Yeah, he, I mean, he's pretty spineless. Yeah. <laughs> That's probably a safe bet. And then they want to put in a puppet king, which also tells them he's not, they're not interested in, in slaughtering the people. They want to keep Jerusalem intact. They want to put in their own puppet king over the city of Jerusalem. Because Israel and Judah were so interrelated and the bloodlines, remember, it's like in, back in the history of, of Europe, remember how it was with the kings of England and France and Scotland mm -hmm. and even Germany? They were all part of the same bloodline, the same family. It's like you'd go to war with another country to try to put one of your people in as their leader, and the people there would accept them because it's all part of the royal families. Mm -hmm. So if they had gone in and put this son of Tobiel in there, it's quite likely that that is somebody who arguably could be the king of Judah by bloodline. And they would like, they would accept him. I mean, this is the kind of thing that went on back then, where families ruled countries. And oftentimes, those same families reached into your country where you had family members on your side. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go over there and kill your cousin and make you kings. Cool? All right, let's go. Mm -hmm. But the Lord has a good word for Ahaz. He tells him in verse 7, It shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be broken, so that it will not be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Ramalia's son. If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. So a, you know, kind of a of an ominous warning here. Yeah, and he, I love the, the logic that Isaiah, bringing the word of the Lord, says here, because... You know, the reason why he says the head of Syria is Damascus and the head of Damascus is Rezin, then he rehearses that same thing with Ephraim, which, by the way, if you're wondering, we, you know, what is Ephraim? Ephraim is kind of the lead tribe 
in the nation of Israel. It's where the capital of Samaria is. And so when, when you hear Ephraim, that's Israel. It was one of Joseph's sons, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. That's correct. And so that tribe allotment is where the capital city of Samaria is. And so what is what is the Lord saying? He's rehearsing and saying, okay, the head of Syria is Damascus. The head of Damascus is Rezin. And then he does the same thing. The head of Ephraim is Samaria. And the head of Samaria is Ramalia's son. Well, then what is the head of Judah? And and the answer is not Ahaz, by the way. The Lord is, is saying, like, I am the head here. The, you know, this is where my temple dwells. This is this kingdom is supposed to be for me. And so you could have the heads of all those people that are going to perish. I can tell you when their kingdoms are going to fall. When does my kingdom fall, Ahaz? Where are you putting your trash? Who is the head of this kingdom? Um, and if you will not believe you will not be established. And what he's saying is, put your faith in me. I am the head of this kingdom. If you trust in me, I will establish you and protect you. And Ahaz is an idiot <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and decides, you know what? I would rather trust in the king of Assyria. Yeah, which uh, <laughs> doesn't turn out to be the smartest of, of, uh, of plans. Um, the message is organized in an interesting way. It's like, this is solid fact. You know it. And this is something I'm telling you will come to pass. And I want you to understand the equivalence. They are both facts. Mm -hmm. But he, the, the equivalent, it's like he's running a logic class here. Yeah. You know, yeah. He's, well, the head of Judah is Jerusalem. And the head of Jerusalem is, what's your answer, Ahaz? Yeah. Do you think you're the great power of Jerusalem or am I? Yeah. Um, What's, what's your answer? <laughs> I mean, the Lord dwells in his temple atop Jerusalem. He is the great power. Will you believe that? Yeah. If you do, you'll be established. If you don't, you'll face ruin. And so from Second Chronicles chapter 28 and from Second Kings chapter 16, we have the story of what Ahaz chooses to do. First of all, many hundreds of thousands killed, mm -hmm. 120,000 in Judah killed in one day, all valiant men, so all fighting men. And then it's taking away 200,000 women, sons, and daughters. So they're, they killed all the men that could fight, and they're taking away the women, sons, and daughters. So you can't repopulate the land. We've come in, we've killed your fighting forces, we've killed your able-bodied mm -hmm. men, we're taking your women and children back to be our captives. And then the Lord interferes here, or, yeah. or comes in, and st steps in. And, and what's interesting about that is what did Assyria do to prevent that? So we know that Ahaz empties out the treasury, empties out all the, the wealth and the gold and everything else out of the temple of the Lord and sends it to the king of Assyria. What did, what did he get for all that? The king of Assyria didn't come and rescue the captives. The king of Assyria didn't come and defend Jerusalem. The king of Assyria really doesn't do anything initially. <laughs> you know, he, he's like, oh, thank you very much. This is a kind gift moving right along. <laughs> and eventually he'll he'll take down the, the Syrians and later another one will take down Israel. But what's fascinating is it's the Lord in spite of Ahab's or Ahaz's wickedness. It's the Lord who goes and shows mercy and defends and rescues the captives from the people of Judah. Even though Ahaz has basically spat in his face, the Lord still shows mercy on those people. Right. Verse 7 of Second Kings 16 gives us the, 
uh, the response. That's when Ahaz sends messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria, and basically he grovels. He says, I am your servant yep. and your son. Come up and save me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who rise up against me. And then it says, he took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. So he took it. Not only did he take his own money, his own mm -hmm. treasury, but he went in and stole from the temple and yeah. sent that all to Assyria. We, by the way, one of the archaeological nerdy nugget here, we actually have in the records of Tiglath-Pileser, the, the king of Assyria, we have record from his writings about a receipt of this gift. So he talks about how Ahaz came and gave gold and silver and iron and precious clothing that was dyed purple, it says, and just gives him this enormous gift in, in exchange for his protection. So we have that recorded outside the Bible, mm. um, which is just – it's kind of fascinating. But as Ahaz is groveling and sending all of their resources, which by the way, they will need later <laughs> and not have, <laughs> idiot, anyway – at the same time that's happening, it says the prophet of the Lord shows up named Oded, who shows up in Israel, and he comes to the leaders of Israel, and he says, you ha are creating a rage that's reading, reaching up to heaven, and you need to return these captives, the, the, the women and children that you have stolen from Judah. You need to send them back, or the wrath of the Lord is going to fall on you. And the leaders of Israel, who don't love the Lord, but they recognize they don't want to be on his bad side either, say, yeah, it's probably a good idea. And they send the captives back, which is, I love the fact that even though Ahaz fails and he's a terrible leader, the Lord goes anyway to show mercy on these captives to give them freedom. Yeah. Yeah, I, and I love Oded's statement in Second Chronicles 28, 9, and 10. Uh, he says, you know, look, because the Lord God of your fathers was angry with Judah, he has delivered them into your hand, but you have killed them in a rage that reaches up to heavens, what you were just talking about. Mm -hmm. And now you propose to force the children of Judah and Jerusalem to be your male and female slaves? And what they don't do, you don't see this out of Israel. You know, they're they're part of the covenant that was handed down, right? Mm -hmm. What you don't find them doing is, wait a minute, the Lord is angry with us? Oh, let us repent and draw near and love him. What are they doing? They only do so much as to where they don't sense his wrath. They don't want him. They don't love him. They don't worship him. They don't want to obey him. They just want to keep him at arm's length, and they don't want his wrath to fall upon them. Right. And that is the way that the people of God, going back through all of history, treat him. We, we want you close enough to bless us, but far enough away to where you don't have any claim on our life. Mm -hmm. And that's what you're seeing here again. It's just the Lord is uh, – he's so mistreated by his people uh, and humanity in general just all the time, and you see his mercy – just unrelentingly shining through in spite of our wickedness again and again. You know, as you're telling me that, I find myself thinking, you're talking about us today. Mm -hmm. You're talking about believers, Christians, churches today. It's the same thing. It's like, mm -hmm. we're going to do just enough to believe that God's not going to let bad things happen to us, but we're not going to commit ourselves to the Lord. Yeah. Um, 
that is such a common thing today. It's like, I just want to, I just won't want to be in trouble with God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I can think back to many prayers in my life as I've grown. And even, even now, sadly, where there's a lot of times where I'll say, Hey God, I'll draw near to you if you give me X yeah. or Y. Yeah. Yeah. And what are we saying to the Lord? Like, you know, I'll, I'll put up with you. I'll, I'll, you know, okay, fine. I'll draw near. I'll pray. I'll read my Bible, but not for you. I don't want you. I want right. what you give me. I mean, it's heartbreaking, but that is that's the natural attitude and disposition of humanity toward God. We don't want Him. Yeah, we really don't. And what does He want? He doesn't want our junk. He doesn't yeah. want even necessarily our works. He wants our heart. So, our our disposition toward Him and His disposition toward us could not be more radically opposed to one another. Yeah. He wants our hearts, and we want His stuff. In Second Chronicles twenty eight, where it tells us that Ahaz sent these treasures to Assyria to get him to help him, chapter twenty eight, verse twenty, we have. The response, it says, also Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria, came to him, and it says, and it distressed him and did not assist him. For Ahaz took part of the treasures from the house of the Lord, from the house of the king, and from the leaders, and he gave it to the king of Assyria, but he, the king of Assyria, did not help him. So it's like, got the nerdy kid on the playground, the bully's like, what's in your lunchbox? <laughs> uh, well, you know what my mom made for that was pretty good. So I'm going to give you my lunch. Does that mean you're not going to hit me? No. It just means you're going to give me your lunch. <laughs> and so that's what happened. You know, initially, uh, Tiglath-Pileser's response was to take what Ahaz sent him. Mm-hmm. You told me this. The Hebrew word there actually has this sort of sharp meaning to it. And it, it we, we would almost say he stabbed him in the back. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what he does. He takes the bribe, still does everything on his own time. He did nothing to bail them out. But then... When you finally see Assyria begin to move and they go and they conquer Damascus, right? They conquer Damascus. They kill the king of Assyria. They wipe them out. Ahaz, still at this point, after the Lord has rescued his people, after the Lord has defended Jerusalem, after the Lord's done everything and Assyria has done nothing, this is when you have Ahaz who shows up and goes to Damascus and is like, ooh, I want to worship your gods. Yeah. Um, you, you defeated the Syrians? Well, then your God must be the most powerful. And again, even in spite of all of God's goodness, he chases Assyria and wants to worship their gods now. Second yeah. Kings 16, verse 9, it says, So the king of Assyria heeded him, for the king of Assyria went up against Damascus and took it, carried its people captive to Kir, and killed Rezin. You know, he needed to get on the warpath here, and mm-hmm. Syria was closer, so he just took Syria. Or he didn't like <laughs> Rezin or whatever. He started in Syria. And you got to remember, he's his ultimate aim is Egypt. And so everything that rests between where he is. By the way, the, the, the king of Assyria, his palace, which we have uncovered that then ISIS in 2015 came and destroyed all the ruins because they're such wonderful morons. Um, but Tiglath-Pileser is like Mosul, which is in northern Iraq. That's uh-huh. about where this palace is. And so everything they do, they just come down and they're going to swallow up Assyria. They're going to swallow up Israel. And Ahaz is not too smart, but he should know they're going to swallow up Judah. And they're on their way to swallowing up Egypt, which yeah. eventually they will do. The Assyrians um, didn't have friends, did they? No, 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 no. They had people who were terrified of them. Period. Yeah. In Second Chronicles 28, verses 22 and 23, we're told about Ahaz's 
turning to the gods of Damascus. It says, Now in the time of his distress, King Ahaz became increasingly unfaithful to the Lord. This is that King Ahaz. Uh, for he, <laughs> that one, you know, that King Ahaz. Verse 23, For he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus, which had defeated him, saying, Because the gods of the kings of Syria helped them, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. But they were the ruin of him and of all Israel. And then in 2 Kings 16, beginning in verse 10, Now King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria. So his, his hero, his boss, his new boss, was, was <laughs> in Damascus because he'd conquered the place. So Ahaz is going to go up and lick some boots, basically. He's going to Damascus to grovel some more. And he said, it says, verse 10 there, that he saw an altar that was at Damascus. And King Ahaz sent to Urijah the priest the design of the altar and its pattern according to all its workmanship. Then Urijah the priest built an altar according to all that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. As the story goes on, this altar, this Damascene altar, was a very ornate, um, it was, it, and, but it was used for pagan uh, worship. And so he instructed the priest of the Lord to take that altar to push the Lord's altar, the bronze altar that the Lord had had them make in the temple, off to the side and then start making sacrifices to the Lord on this pagan temple, on this pagan altar, rather, while Ahaz says, that altar you shove to the side, I'll use that for my own uh, divine inquiries, my own... Divination. Yeah, pagan divinations, basically. It's like Ahaz was just... it's. Sam, it's almost like he was saying, what's the worst possible thing I can do here? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, to, to you try to think like when I think of King Ahaz, I just he's a despicable person, but he's in his 20s probably doing all this stuff. Like when he comes into power, he's still, you know, a young man. And so, I mean, think of somebody fresh out of college, just, you know, he's he's still young. He hasn't learned. He's super impulsive. But it's like he is so stubbornly hatred of the Lord that he makes every possible decision that would just incense the Lord more. So the tabernacle or the temple layout that God had given, you know, with the altar, Ahaz is like, Psh, I don't want it there. I've got a better plan. The the bronze sea where they would wash that had the bulls holding up this massive bowl. He just moves that, takes it off of its perch and puts it on the north side. And he starts using it for all of his own purposes. I mean, he is, he's basically just defiling the word of God and saying, I want, I want help from the heavens on my terms. Yeah. And I'm going to invent my own God that I think should be there. And the interesting thing to me is that he's Uzziah's grandson. In other words, he knows the story of what happened to granddad. Yeah, yeah, really. Even if he wasn't yeah. even if he wasn't alive when that happened to Uzziah, you know that his that he heard the story that Uzziah went into the temple and offended the Lord and was struck with leprosy mm -hmm. and died from it. Mm -hmm. And yet still he's like, yeah, let me you know, that temple, I'm going to go like take all the stuff out of it and rearrange everything to suit myself. Yeah, and and we we tend to think we would never do anything like this today, or we it's hard to even imagine like how how could we relate to this? And and I started thinking about like how how do we act like King Ahaz? And I think we do it in a lot of ways that are more subtle, but they're every bit the same kind of heart, where we take things that are sacred to the Lord, or um, and and we go after the world's way of doing things. You know, 
when when Ahaz went to Damascus, he saw, oh, this is much cooler worship. This will be even shinier. This will get more attention. This will be even better. Yeah. And he takes what's sacred and ancient and says, let's get rid of it because it's no longer relevant, right? And let's bring in something shinier that I like better and we'll put it where the sacred used to be. And all that he's doing as he's sending the message to the world it, that the people of God are no different than every other nation. In fact, they're importing all of the world's ways of doing things. They're no different at all. Um, you know, and I, I, I think oftentimes we as a church are guilty of that. You know, we look at things that are sacred, that are holy, that are different than the world's way of doing things. And it's like we want to apologize for it. Yeah. And we, we want to import this new way of doing it. In the Second Chronicles 28, Sam actually made reference to the end of the Ahaz story there in Second Kings, where he talked about the different things that Ahaz was taking from the temple, how he was using the things that were inside the temple for his own interests, whatever they were. In Second Chronicles 28, it has even some more detail here. Beginning in verse 24, Second Chronicles 28, 24, it says, So Ahaz gathered the articles of the house of God, cut in pieces the articles of the house of God, and this is the saddest thing, shut up the doors of the house of the Lord and made for himself altars in every corner of Jerusalem. In every single city of Judah, he made high places to burn incense to other gods and provoked to anger the Lord God of his fathers. So in addition to everything else Ahaz did, he basically shut down the temple like no one was going to worship. There were going to be no sacrifices made. The people have no place to go. But I'll set up my pagan altars over here. It is, it really is the worst behavior you can imagine. Yeah. And you see this coming out of the kings. You know, we tend to romanticize, uh, you know, the, the, the history of Judah and Israel in our minds because they're the people of God. But when you read the scriptures, what you find is they are so dismissive of him. I mean, like you, you'll get later on down the line when you're reading the story of Josiah and it says, you know, that he found the scriptures in the temple. Like, what are these? You know, <laughs> like what? Uh, it's, it's, but you get the sense when you read some of these stories, like how these kings had transformed the temple and basically shut it down. And, yeah. you know, for years, decades, this will go on. Hezekiah will be a bright spot. And then, you know, you'll have the, the truth of God kind of languish for a while. Um, but it's kind of heartbreaking when you think of how desperately God loves his people, how ridiculously wicked and neglectful his people are. Yeah. So then sort of to bring this back to a conclusion, let's go back to Isaiah chapter 7 because we've, we know that you know, we, we understand the predicament that Ahaz found himself in, and he was given a promise of, of, from the Lord that this would not succeed, and told to trust, to believe, you know, to have, he had to have faith. He had to have faith in the Lord um, to deliver him from this situation, and we now know he didn't. Turned to Assyria, groveled before them. They eventually, you know, threw him a bone, and he just went off the deep end in wickedness, shut down the temple of the Lord and all these other things. And yet, still, the Lord reaches out to Ahaz. It's like this guy gets that should a second, third chance. I don't even know how many chances this is for Judah, but it's certainly a second chance uh, for Ahaz. Yeah, it's like the Lord is coming to him being like, I need the king who reigns over my people 
to be righteous. I need them to, I love them. I want you to follow me. I want to be your God. I want to be with you. And he goes to this king again saying, ask, ask yourself a sign for the Lord your God. This is verse 10. Ask it either in the depths, literally there, it's the depths of Sheol, hell itself, as far down as you want, or in the height above, it's it's what's called a merism in Hebrew. It means there's, there's nothing you can't ask. Go the deepest you want or the highest you want. What sign do you need from me to follow me, to, to be in relationship with me? De- you just hear almost a like desperate love for the Lord. Turn to me, turn to me. And Ahaz says, I will not ask nor will I test the Lord. And what he's saying there is, I'm not interested. Even if you showed me a sign, I'm not following you. Um, It's just so unbelievably wicked. And so what does the Lord say? Now, this is probably the most famous passage of Isaiah chapter 7. Um, It's the prophecy when when Jesus is, you know, the Lord is going to foretell that the Messiah is going to be born of a virgin. But listen to what he says. So Ahaz has basically said, I don't want a sign. I'm not interested in anything you have to say. I'm not coming back to you. And the Lord is going to announce a sign anyway. But this sign is for everyone. So here you imagine this Lord who's heartbroken in some sense over the wickedness of his people. He says, here now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will you weary my God also? Therefore, now this is where the Lord says, okay, Ahaz, I don't care if you want the sign or not. I'm giving this sign. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Why is that important? Because Ahaz comes from this long line of horrible kings. The, the, the line of Judah is just littered with all of these terrible kings and some good ones in the mix, but they're all fallen. They're all messed up. But this time a virgin's going to conceive. That doesn't make sense to us, right? What is what is God getting at? This is not going to come from the line of fallen men. This son is going to be conceived of a virgin because he is going to come from a line of God himself. This is going to be the son of God, perfect, righteous, coming from a different realm to establish a justice that this world cannot know. And then it says, and you shall call his name Emmanuel and That is just like uh, an amazing, amazing promise because that name in Hebrew, Emmanuel, means God with us. You want a sign? Ahaz, ask it from the highest of heavens. What's the answer? Emmanuel. He comes from the highest of heavens. You want a sign to the depths of hell? Emmanuel. It is the God who will go to the depths of the bellies of hell to redeem his people. This is the measure of my love for you. This is the promise of my people. I am not going to tolerate all this totally fallen, broken, wicked, awful, unjust kingdoms. I am sending my son to establish a king of perfect righteousness. And this is, I think, playing off something that's going on here. There's all these father-son reactions, interactions in the story. So you have Isaiah who comes with his son, and his son's name literally means a remnant shall return. It's an announcement of, of judgment and hope. Then you have Ahaz himself, and what is he doing with his son? He's throwing his sons in fires for Pete's sake. And then you have God who says, I'm bringing my sign. 
Here's my son conceived of a virgin, and his name will be Emmanuel. Why? Because God will never leave you. My God will be with you. And what happens to that God who comes with us? You see, this is the part where the gospel, when we think of pointing fingers at God, man, his love for us is so amazing. How dare we? But this God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, triune God, one God and three persons, takes the – like he comes, the Son of God comes into this world and what happens to him? He's he dumb. is going to be thrown into the fires of judgment. Why? Why? So that you, son of the king, you, daughter of the king, could be elevated to an everlasting inheritance with him in heaven. He takes all this wickedness upon himself and pays for it in the fires of God's wrath. Why? So that you can be clothed in everlasting righteousness and brought and grafted into a kingdom that is no longer corrupt. You can have that hope for yourself. And this, when God comes and says, that's it, I'm done with you, Ahaz, here's my sign. It's for all the people. It's my son. He shall be called Emmanuel. He is going to accomplish righteousness. Hmm. And Isaiah's bursting onto the scene with this beautiful picture of what God is going to do for us. And it is utterly, utterly amazing. Hmm. Unwarranted grace. Unbelievable grace. This, if, if you can look at this and not be amazed by this kind of grace and not think, my goodness, this God is amazing – Man, I I don't know what you expect from him. What more could you want from him? What more could he give? He gives himself even unto death. What more could you possibly ask for? Mm. Well, that is certainly a good question. And that's the note that we're going to end on today. Um, We hope that you've enjoyed your time with us, folks, uh, that it's been profitable for you this time we spent together studying Isaiah. Uh, We do invite you to keep up with the series of messages, Isaiah, A Voice of Hope. If you hear the podcasts and you want to hear the sermons that go that are on the same passage, um, you could always find those on our website at riovistachurch.com. That's R-I-O vistachurch.com. You can also find them, by the way, we've got a YouTube channel. If you haven't been there, it's uh, youtube.com slash Rio Vista Church, or just search for Rio Vista Church on YouTube. We have full services there. You can watch one of our church services. We also have the messages from each message series cut out separately and available in playlists there. So um, visit our YouTube channel. Take advantage of the materials that we, we post there as well. If you want to get all the back episodes of the Out of Water podcast, you can find that on our website at riovistachurch.com slash podcast or slash out of water. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or on Spotify. Sam and I will be back next week with more from the book of Isaiah. We look forward to seeing you then. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater. Water.